How are we doing, Midcurrent Church? James Brown here, teaching pastor at Cedarbrook in Menominee, and I am so excited to be with you today. If you are just dialing in, uh, we are in the midst of a teaching series uh, called Back to Normal. Sten started the series a few weeks ago, and we are diving into this content because for me, it didn't take long uh, in this pandemic. Uh, for me to discuss with uh, everyone that I was uh, social distancing with in conversations to identify a, a very specific longing that we all were having. Uh, this deep desire was being communicated in the form of questions on Instagram posts or updates on Facebook. It was being communicated by people who were lamenting sort of this endless days at home uh, streak that we were a part of. It was being communicated by parents who are homeschooling uh, for the very first time and like me failing miserably at the homeschooling process. It was communicated in a lot of different ways, this longing, this desire that we had. And now, though, with the new COVID cases that are emerging and surging and the details that are coming out about schools uh, and all the questions that surround it this year, the question that we've all been asking to expose this longing in our life is simply this question. When will things finally get back to normal? When will things, the things of our life, the activities, when will these things finally get back to normal? Have you asked that question recently? Um, have you thought about that question uh, in the, the last little bit here, in the last maybe few days, in the last few minutes? Uh, I, I have. Because this idea of normal has this really interesting gravitational pull on our lives. Most people prefer normal. We, we prefer the status quo. We, we prefer this certainty, this, this predictability that exists in our lives. We want that for us. We, we like to know how things are going to play out and what they're going to look like so that we can anticipate what's going to happen and we can make plans for the future. And truth be told, this desire that we have for normal is, is in most things quite helpful and pretty harmless. But the question that we want to look at in this series is simply this. Although we desire to get back to normal, is that normal that we desire what God desires for us? But what we're longing for when we want to get back to normal, is that God's best for us? Would that represent his desire and his design for us in our lives? And so we want to talk about today that today. In fact, I want to talk particularly about a normal that exists that I believe might be the hardest to overcome for many people who would say that they follow Jesus. But I would also submit to you that, that this particular normal is one that God wants us to come to the conclusion that, is actually, that it, it is actually abnormal for the Christian life. In fact, I would say that Jesus died so that we wouldn't become satisfied with this standard, ordinary, typical, run-of-the-mill aspect of our faith. And so to, to set this idea up, but let, let me just say that, that one of the things that make Christianity and following Jesus so great is that we don't have to do it alone. 
Uh, Being a a disciple or a follower of Jesus is is not a solo journey. We we do that with people. In fact, if you read through the New Testament part of the Bible, what you begin to find is that on almost every page, there is this huge list of one another's that are there. That, That the point of being a Jesus follower isn't that you just go to church once a week or that you go to a building, especially uh, since it's during a difficult pandemic where the building is rented from the YMCA camp, like going to a building, sometimes it is, isn't even an option, but that's not even the point. The point isn't just to go to church, but rather the point of being a follower of Jesus is that we become the church or that we be the church for one another, one another. So we are called, one author has described, we are called to one another, one another. We're called to love one another. We're called to pray for one another. We're called to forgive one another, accept and honor and serve and care for and even comfort one another. And who in the world doesn't want that type of situation, right? I've been a Christian for almost my entire life. I've been a pastor for almost 25 years. And what I've observed is that when Christian community is functioning as it is supposed to, as Jesus wanted it to, it is the most beautiful thing on the face of the earth. When one another's are working right, it is one of the most beautiful aspects of what it means to be human. But at the same time, I want to say this, that these one another's that we're talking about, that they also have a dark side as well, that there's an aspect to them that, that nobody really wants to talk about, which is this, that most churches end their activities at the one another's. That when it comes to the the programming or the pursuits or the, the, the planning that a church does, most churches, and I would say most Christians, end the activities at the end of the one another's. And here, here's why that's the case. Because once you're sort of connecting with other people in Christian community, once you find acceptance, let's say in a small group, or, or you're on the receiving end of some caring or some giving from other Christians who are sharing or loving or supporting you as their one another, when you receive that sort of attention, Uh, When you start doing these sort of things with other like-minded Christians, when you're participating in that, becoming insider-focused, the one another's becoming insider-focused can easily become the new normal for your life. Why is that? Why is it so Filled, of, filled with temptation to, to focus on those that are on the inside, one anothering one another? Well, it's because of this gravitational pull. It pulls us toward wanting to continue and cultivate these sort of relationships of support. And oftentimes that sort of support is to the detriment of people that are not part of that group specifically people that aren't part of your or my church community. They're not presently part of the church. But what's interesting 
is that although this thing is sort of a churchy thing that happens to people that decide to follow Jesus, it's not just a churchy thing. It's also a sciencey thing as well. Now, you may not know this, but recently uh, a, a scientist, a data researcher named Moran Cerf, he's a neurologist at a major college in America, he actually made some really interesting groundbreaking discoveries about what happens when people become part of a group or they become part of a community. As part of his 10-year research project, Dr. Cerf concluded that, that when one becomes part of a group, the, the changes that occur in the person's life as a result of being in, in that group isn't just behavioral. He has also found that the changes that occur when someone joins a group, those changes are also neurological as well. What he has uncovered is that the more time that people spend together, the more their brainwaves begin to line up with one another. The, the more time that a group hangs out together, the more that their, their brain and their thoughts begin to sync up, the, the more they begin to, to look identical in their lives. Surf writes it this way. He says, the more we study engagement or the more we study groups or community, the, the more that we see time and time again that just being next to certain people, being next to them, spending time with them actually aligns your brain with them. This means the people you hang out with actually have an impact on your engagement with reality beyond what you can explain. And one of those effects is that you become alike. Now, what Surf is saying here is that with no effort whatsoever, with just proximity in place, being together with other people, doing life together, being with people who are moving in a certain direction, when you hang out with people like that, something happens in your brain that compels you to continue traveling with them in that particular direction. Now, these findings clearly have a positive aspect and a negative aspect as well, that if you're hanging out with people who are making good decisions, you're more likely to do that. But the opposite is also true. And the way that this plays out in the church is that it creates a new normal when people enter into that community. And the new normal, the normal that is almost inevitable is that if you begin community in a church and you start walking in that direction, there is always the danger that eventually your church friends can become your only friends. That your church friends can eventually, by nature, normally, become your only friends. Now, as you start to engage with people who go to church, it's normal to feel that increased pull toward people who are inside the church, people who embody traits that, that we prefer uh, other Christians so, so that as a result, what we slowly and unconsciously inevitably do is that we begin to move toward them and pull away from people who are outside of the church. And what's so fascinating is that this is not a choice that we make consciously. It's something that just happens to us automatically at a neurological level. It's normal. 
It's the way that we're designed to do it. This whole process is natural. But the danger is, without any sort of energy to the contrary of that, eventually your friends become, at church, your friends become your only friends. That's why I said that most churches eventually end their activities at the one another. Because for most churches and many Christians, the insider one another's that get experienced in that community become enough. But here's the deal. Stopping at the one another's may be enough for us naturally, normally, but the truth is stopping with the insiders is not enough for God. In fact, all throughout the Bible, we read things like John 3, 16, which says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone, everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. First Timothy chapter two, verse four says, God wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. God did not stop his plan at gathering a few more in the door and no more. But that also means that we can't stop our plan with insiders only either. And for us to do that, we have to begin to push against the gravitational pull that keeps us focused on the people who are already inside of the church. And so today, to to help us overcome our uh, neurological tendencies, I want to show you a picture. I want to show you an image. I want to share with you a very obscure story uh, about uh, some people that you have probably never even heard about before. My guess is you've not read this story before, but it is found in the Hebrew portion of the Bible. And I want to share with you this story today. So if you have a Bible or if you have access to a Bible or a Bible app, uh, go with me to 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. And while you're going there, while you're finding this story, let me just give you a little bit of context for this picture, this image, this story that we're going to look at today, that we're stepping into. And the event that we're going to be looking at takes place at about 850 B.C., in a country that is ruled by a terrible king named Jehoram. And because Jehoram was such a terrible king, God sent a prophet by the name of Elisha to tell Jehoram that he was so wicked. And because he was so wicked, God was going to allow another army, another nation to come in and conquer them completely. But Jehoram, he didn't believe the prophet Elisha uh, when he said this was going to happen. But that didn't matter because God had already decided to allow it to happen. And so another nation known as the Arameans, they came to this capital city that was ruled by Jehoram and they surrounded it so that no one could go in and no one could go out. And so the, the Aramean battle strategy was very effective because it eventually caused the city to begin to run out of food. And, and as time passed, this Aramean battle strategy was working really, really well because people were starting to starve. 
Uh, Things got so bad in this city that Jehoram's people started eating anything and everything that was moving around. In fact, the story actually gives us some pretty graphic details about how bad things were getting. For for example, uh, they were selling uh, donkey heads at a premium. That, that was like the, the filet mignon steak in that moment, that they were selling donkey heads at a premium. And then it was actually getting worse, that they were actually selling and eating dove dung. Dove dung. That was, that was being shared and sold in order to eat. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse to the point that cannibalism was rampant in the city. It was a disgusting situation. It was totally gross, uh, but it was meant to sort of represent that these were really bad living conditions. Okay, And it's against the backdrop of this situation of desperation that we pick up this story in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3. Look at it with me if you would. It says this. Now there were four men with leprosy sitting at the entrance of the city gate. These four guys were hanging out right at the city gate. They were lepers and they weren't allowed to be in society. So they started talking with one another. They had a conversation. They said, why should we sit here waiting to die? They were asking each other, why, why should we just sit here? We need to do something. So what, what should we think about doing? Verse four it says, we will starve if we stay here, but the famine, but with the famine in the city, we will starve if we go back there. So we're sitting in the city gate. If we just sit here and do nothing, we're gonna starve at the city gate. But if we go in the city, there's no food there either. We're going to die. If we sit here or if we go in the city, we're going to die. So we might as well go out and surrender to the Aramean army. If they let us live, so much better. They, they may give us a meal or a food to eat. They, we may survive this from their generosity. But if they kill us, huh, we would have died anyway. <laughs> the optimistic one is chiming in here, right? So they, they've come up with this plan. In verse 5, so at twilight they set out for the camp of the Arameans. And look at this. This is the, the twist in the story. But when they came to the edge of the camp, here's the twist, dun, dun, dun. No one was there. No one was there. Why was no one left in this Aramean camp? Well, verse 6 says, For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the clatter of speeding chariots, and the galloping of horses and the sound of a great army approaching. And so they concluded the king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptians to attack us. So they cried out to one another. So they they were freaking out in this moment. Verse 7, they panicked and they ran into the night, abandoning their tents, horses, donkeys, and everything else as they fled for their lives. You know, they heard this, this sound and we don't exactly know how the sound was created. It was maybe by the wind or by some sort of earthquake or God had dropped a big Bose speaker down into the camp. We don't, we don't know how it all played out, but whatever sound God had created, created an intense panic in these soldiers. It scared the Arameans. And so they were so weirded out by this scenario that they literally just dropped everything they had and everything they were doing in order to just take off and flee the scene. But what was interesting is that at the exact same time the Arameans were hearing this, no one in the city heard anything. They didn't know what was going on in the camp. They they didn't know that anything was even happening. So the scene that these guys are walking into was essentially undisturbed until they, they walked into that 
moment. And so look at how they respond. Verse 8 says, When the men with leprosy arrived at the edge of the camp. Now, let me just stop here for a second because I have to ask, if you were one of these lepers in this moment, what would you do if you were one of the lepers? Um, you know, one of them, you know, because there's always one of these in the group, the conscious of the group. Hey, you know what? We should probably go back and tell everyone in the city uh, what we just found. And then the other three were like, nah, let's party. Let's party. And that's exactly what they did. They went to the edge of the camp. They went into one tent after another, eating and drinking wine. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and they hid it. Like they said, we have come into the jackpot and here we are. We're going to take advantage of it. I mean, can you imagine the scene? This is so crazy. These four guys head out. I mean, these guys are cast off uh, to the literal edge of society. I mean, they are the outsiders in their community. I mean, they're these helpless and hopeless individuals in a, a situation that can't be remedied on their own when all of a sudden they just happen upon the find of a lifetime. They're poor, destitute. They, they have no food, no possessions, no clothing, no wealth. And then in a split second, they have all of those things. One minute they're penniless. And then in the next minute, they literally strike gold. And what's so amazing about this situation is that they literally had nothing to do with what just happened. They did nothing to earn it or create it, but now they are more blessed than they ever could have imagined in their life. And it's at this point of receiving this moment, experiencing this blessing in their life, that the tension sort of begins and they store, sort of start wondering as their conscience kicks in, what, what are we going to do now? Like, like we've been the beneficiaries of this unbelievable experience, this blessing. What are we going to do with what we have now discovered? And the temptation of that moment is to give into the gravitational pull that keeps the moment for themselves. The temptation is to bask in the glory of their newfound blessing and good fortune. And they can do that. Or they can also go back to the places and to the people that they've left behind in order to tell them what they have just found. And in reading this story, we're left wondering what would we do if we were in their sandals? How would we react? How would we respond to this new discovery, the blessing that was unexpected? How would we respond? Well, we know how they would respond. Look at verse 9. It says, after much discussion, finally, they said to each other, look at this, look at, look at what it says. Finally, they said to each other, this is not right. This is not right. What's not right? They said, this is a day of good news and we aren't sharing it with anyone. 
If we wait until the morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Look at this. Come, let's go back and tell the people at the palace. I want you to see what they said. They said, this is not right. This day is a day of good news and we're not sharing it with anyone. So let's go back so that we can tell the people about it. And friends, that's exactly what they did. I mean, you can read the rest of the story uh, in, in 2 Kings chapter 7. And what you will see is that because they were willing to go back and share the good news of what they discovered, the whole city was saved. It's an unbelievable story. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible account, but I'm guessing that you can probably see where I'm going with this here. I mean, you can probably see the parallels of this story to our lives as well. I mean, it seems almost too obvious to state that, that when we read this story, it seems a little too obvious to us what these guys should do. But at the exact same time, I, I sort of wonder if, if all of heaven doesn't look down on us and it's obvious to them what we should do with what we've discovered. You see, the truth of this story is that we are a lot more like the lepers than we would probably like to let on. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, chances are you were at once an outsider. You, you were separated from God because of your sin. But because you responded to the, the good news of, of Jesus, you moved from being an outsider to being an insider. You moved from being outside of the, the grace of God to being part of God's family. And when that happened, the, there was a decision then that you needed to make. There was a moment that you needed to respond to where you could say, this is not right. That I enjoy this blessing all for myself. There, there's this moment where you have to decide, will I then go back to tell the story? Or will I keep it all for myself? And friends, the, the sad truth is that very few people in very few places are willing to put out the welcome mat when it comes to the outsiders of the church. I mean, that's why every church and every Christian needs to, to get to this moment where they have a this is not right decision where they make. A, a this is not right moment where they decide, but sadly, most never do. And as a result, most churches, unfortunately, turn into a club for the insiders. But most churches make it all about the converted and the convinced. And so I want to talk to you today and bring you to the moment where we decide, is that going to be the same for us? At Midcurrent, are we going to be that kind of church? Because we are finding ourselves in the exact same situation as these lepers, where we have to ask, what are we going to do with what we have discovered? 
And if you're a Christian today, like these lepers, you have stumbled onto something that's too good to be true. And the question is, will you go back to the capital city? Will you go back to the people in your neighborhood? Will you go back to the people at your school or at your workplace or at your fitness club or back to your circle of friends? Will you go back to those individuals who need to hear and respond to the same good news that you have experienced yourself? Will you go back to share what you've discovered with them? Or maybe there are people who are in sort of a desperate need. Maybe they know it or they don't know it. And their desperate need is to have their lives be be changed by Jesus. They need to meet Jesus and then be transformed by that relationship. They, They need desperately to have their sins forgiven, to have their eternity in heaven secured. They need to enter into a relationship with a God who designed them for that very relationship. They they need to be part of God's family. And you see, what the story of these lepers teaches us is that with great discovery comes great responsibility. You see, friends, in our world, it is normal not to go back, right? But what we've learned from the story is that with great discovery comes great responsibility, I mean, normal is that over time we begin to lose contact with with the pre-Christians or the spiritually curious individuals that we know and love. I mean, that's normal that we sort of lose that contact. Normal is getting caught up and going to church and hanging out with our Christian friends, which is a really good thing, by the way, that you should do, but not do exclusively. Because we need to go back to the city to tell them the good news of this day, this discovery that we have experienced. But the reality is that for most of us, that's not our default position. That's not our nature. That's not our normal. But what we learn is that great discoveries require us to step into greater and greater responsibility. So as I close, I just want to ask, who who do you know? Who do you know that you need to go back to the city to share Jesus and the good news of the life that he offers with? Who, Who do you know that you need to do that with? Who do you need to maybe begin praying for? In one of the circle circles of relationships that you have at work or in the neighborhood or even in your family, who can you begin praying for that's back in the city? Who is it that you need to to begin to maybe invite for a conversation about faith? To begin asking spiritually directed and minded questions about uh, eternal life and the purpose of our existence here. Who is that for you back in the city that you need to maybe have a conversation with? Who is it that you need to reach out to, to send a note to, or an email to, or a phone call to, to begin that relationship? Who who is that for you this week even? Or or who is it that you could invite to watch Midcurrent online with next week? Who is that individual for you? You see, with great discovery, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you have made a great discovery with great discovery comes an incredible 
immense responsibility. And we need to step into that. Why? Because we don't want to become the kind of church who wants to get back to normal. But rather, we want to become the kind of church that makes it normal to want to go back to the city. Amen? Let's pray. God, we pause in this moment just so grateful for who you are and what you have called us to. That for so many of us who have given our lives to you, who follow you, that we, like these lepers, have have marched into an opportunity that we did not design, that we did not earn, that we did not create, but that we received with grace and gratitude. But now with this discovery of good news, God, we are left with a very important decision. Will we share with others the amazing blessing that we found? And God, I pray that our new normal is one where we are willing to go back to the places and the spaces that need to know you. God, give us that courage. And God, most of all, we thank you for Jesus who modeled that for us, who left heaven and came to earth and shared his life with us so that we could receive more than we ever deserved. Help us to walk in his ways this week. And so it's through his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.